You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Okay, good morning everyone. I'm reading from Acts chapter 21 and 22 this morning, starting from verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, Verse 39, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and sisters, sorry, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From then, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Verse 10, And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Verse 12, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of all, 
by the by all the Jews who lived there came to me and said to me, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. Verse 21. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful? For you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned. These are the true words of the living God. Thanks be to God. Help us to respond in faith. Thank you for... Can you hear me? Thing. Can you hear me? Yes, good morning everybody. My name is Ekeong, one of the pastors of Redemption Hill Church. want to welcome you, especially if you're here for the first time, if you're visiting. Uh, I just want to orientate us a little bit. So um, we are into the second week of our X series again. So we're really, really excited to be jumping back in. Um, and also just before I get started, in case you, want, you wonder why there's a chair here, it's because my back hasn't been doing very well. So it's not as if... Uh, getting worried that, you know, the church is moving in a certain direction when the preacher is sitting down and getting casual, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, why, why don't we pray? Let, let's pray and ask God for help before we jump in. Lord Jesus, this afternoon, we have sung that Jesus is better. We say that you're better than our gains, you're better than our losses. You're better, than, you're, bet, you're better in all circumstances when we are in adversity, when we are in prosperity. But we know that that is only intellectual and cerebral unless you yourself can press that on our hearts and impress upon us the reality of the graciousness and the beauty of Jesus. And I ask, we ask that you do that this evening, this afternoon. We ask that you speak to us in a powerful way we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is courage? Courage is the ability to act in the face of fear. It's a common definition that I find you can find on the website. Now, the fear that we face usually comes from not wanting to suffer loss, right? We 
Maybe some of us, we worry about suffering the loss of uh, opportunities, uh, suffering the loss of freedom, suffering the loss of relationships, maybe even suffering the loss of life. Consider how courage looks like in our daily life. Courage can look like speaking up against injustice at your workplace, except that it might cost you your job. Courage can look like confronting a friend, except that you might risk straining a relationship. In extreme situations, courage entails risking one's own life, even for someone else's life. Courage is costly. And here are two common ways by which we typically obtain courage, right? Sometimes we, we think about our fears and, and that, that two, two approaches here. One is that we deny our fears, right? We say that danger is real, but uh, fear is a choice, right? Uh, we just suppress the fear, don't think so much about it, and then it'll go away. Except we know that that's not true, right? <laughs> because the fears are as real as the potential losses that we will suffer. That's why it doesn't work. But the second approach here is we get courage by relativizing our fears, right? And, and what I mean is this, it's like we, the way we overcome our fear is to measure uh, potential losses against prospective gains. So if the gains look like they're more than the losses, we derive courage and we'll act on something. So suppose that like at your workplace, you want to try a new way of working, right? And, and you know that you're going to risk, it's going to be time-consuming, but you know the prospective gain is that it's going to be cost-saving. And so you exercise some courage and you jump into this new method of doing things, right? Or suppose that there's someone at your workplace, right? Um, your colleague whom you want to talk to, you know, and you're, you're risking that amicable relationship that you have with him or her. But you know in the long run, because this person is so difficult, uh, having that conversation might make your life easier and might make the workplace a lot better, Right? And, and that's, that's the way we think about courage. We do a cost-benefit analysis, right? If the gains surpass the loss, then we pluck up our courage. But friends, what if we are called to do something right, even if it costs us? What if our personal interests are actually on the line? What if we stand to gain nothing when we're doing something right? Will you still have courage? Will you still want courage? And just now, as scripture was being read for us, we see that the Apostle Paul was clearly displayed courage to live for Christ, even when it nearly cost him his life and his freedom. Now, where, this, where does he get his courage from? So the topic for today's sermon is this, the courage to live for Christ. And I'm going to talk to us in three points, right? Breaking down the text in three points. So first, courage to obey, courage to witness, and where can we get it? Courage to obey, courage to witness, where can we get it? Same thing, please keep your Bibles open, digital or otherwise, so that you can track with me. Now, passage today begins like opening scene from a movie filled with lots of tension and drama, right? Just a few verses ago, Paul arrives in Jerusalem because he was told by the church leaders, he was told by the church leaders to purify himself in the temple with four other men, to which he readily complied, except that it got him into no small trouble. Right? Jews from Asia saw Paul in the temple and they decided to stir up the crowd by spreading misinformation. Now listen to what they say. Uh, this is uh, 21 verse 28. Uh, this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Now moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. 
Now listen to the charges that they're bringing against him, right? They're saying that Paul, he, he's kind of anti-Jewish, he's anti-Moses, right? He, uh, Paul over here, he's, he's like speaking against the temple, he's speaking against the law, he has no respect at all for our uh, theological convictions and national interests. Now furthermore, remember, they see Paul with Trophimus, which is a Gentile, and they put two and two together, right? Paul is seen in the temple, and Trophimus is seen with Paul. And by conclusion, Paul brought a Gentile into the temple, that's the way they reason, right? Now, the question is this, right? Why did the Jews kick up such a big drama? It's just bring a Gentile into the temple, right? What's the big deal here? Why, why such a storm in the teacup kind of reaction? Now, to give us some background, I want to say that the temple was divided into several courts. We, we need some understanding here. So there are a couple of courts, right? The, the innermost court is where the Jews actually worship God. Now, just one layer out is the court for women, and the outermost layer is the courts for uh, the Gentiles. So if you like, the spatial arrangement of the temple reflects something about what the Jews actually think about the Gentiles, right? And, 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 and on one of the walls hangs a sign that says this, no foreigner may enter within the barricades surrounding the temple and the enclosure. Anyone caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Think about it, it's a bit of a Jim Crow law for Gentiles, but on steroids, right? And so the Jews decided that Paul must have be, he must be held accountable for such a flagrant violation, and thus they stir up all of Jerusalem, verse 32. They seized Paul, they were about to hang him, except in the nick of time, they were interrupted by the riot police in the form of Roman soldiers. But the uproar was so chaotic that the tribune himself could barely get a word out of Paul. He couldn't even figure out what was happening. He's trying to talk to Paul and like, you know, everything was just chaotic around him. In fact, the mob was in such a violent frenzy that Paul had to be rescued from the clutches of the Jews by the Roman soldiers. Now the question is this, what led Paul into such a predicament? Was it a moment of miscalculation or was it a stroke of misfortune? And the answer is neither, because the answer is that he found himself in such a mess because he obeyed, because he obeyed. And Paul was obedient to the Lord on at least three levels. Let me show us, right? Now, first, Paul found himself in such a mess because he obeyed the elders of the Jerusalem church. Now, remember that was from last week's sermon, right? Come with me to 21 verse 24. Listen to this, right? This is what the elders told Paul. Take this man and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there's nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Now, if you remember from last week's sermon, Jacob reminded us that, Jacob was preaching to us that the Jews are under the impression that um, Paul was anti-Jewish, right? If you have to be, become Christian, you have to forsake the law of Moses, you have to forsake the temple, you have to forsake everything. And Paul is like, no, 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 that's not true. And therefore, he complied to the suggestion of the Jerusalem elders, right? Which is that he took, he went to the temple, he purified himself, he took along four men, picked up the tab, and that's exactly what he did. But it's precisely because Paul is in the temple that he found himself in such a mess. Guess what? The reason why he's in the this predicament, immediately speaking, is because he's in the temple. And he's in the temple because he actually obeyed the elders. So that's the first reason, right? The first thing is that we see Paul is obedient to the Jerusalem elders. But the second thing is that we see Paul was obedient to God's call to Jerusalem as well. 
right? Let me, let me re remind us again. It's the Holy Spirit who directed Paul to Jerusalem. Come with me to the next two verses, right? Acts 19, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So make no mistake here, Paul is going to Jerusalem not in his own accord, but because he was directed by the Holy Spirit. And just one chapter later, it says this, right? And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Not only is the Holy Spirit directing Paul to Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit tells Paul that on his arrival, he'll be greeted with diverse manners of afflictions. That's what he's going to be experiencing. Now, the question is, what is Paul doing in Jerusalem? Now, if you remember, there's something called the Jerusalem Collection, right? And, and, and so just to get us up to speed, there, there was a famine in uh, Jerusalem. This is from like Acts chapter 11, right? And so what Paul was doing is that he was rallying the Gentile churches to pull together a sum of money uh, in order to provide relief, financial relief, uh, to these group of believers in Jerusalem. That's why he's there. But friends, make no mistake, this wasn't Paul's idea, right? He was going to Jerusalem for the collection because the Spirit instructed him to go there. So first we see that Paul was in such a predicament because he obeyed the elders of Jerusalem. Second, he was directed by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. But third, right, he was obeying God's specific call to witness to all, to both Jews and Gentiles. Now come with me again to chapter 22, verses 14 through 15. Now listen to this, right? Uh, we're going to get into the defense speech later, but now I'm just going to give you a taster. And this is what someone said to Paul, right? Ananias, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Now this is Paul recalling his conversion experience coming from Acts chapter 9. And the specific instruction and call that Paul had, that God had for Paul is that he's going to be a witness to all, starting with the Jews and then going on to the Gentiles. Now remember all the missionary journeys, Paul was always going to the synagogue and disputing with the Jews, right, before he actually reached out to the Gentiles. Now, and in this instance, now I want us to pay attention to this, right? Paul was taken into protective custody by the Roman soldiers, Remember, he was snatched out literally of the clutches of the Jews and he was rescued by the Romans. And he could have thanked God for that. What a good day. What a great day. Praise you, Jesus, right? No, he didn't do that. I mean, it's, what do you do? It's like he, he sees the microphone quite literally, right? He sees the golden opportunity. He asks the tribune for permission to address the crowd. What? Paul, like, seriously? I mean, these are the guys who are trying to kill you and you had an exit and now you're trying to address the crowd. Are you out of your mind? But that's exactly what Paul did here, right? Because he was obeying God's commission to witness to the Jews. Now think about how Paul could have excused himself from obeying God. I mean, like, I can come up with like, a couple of like, good reasons, right? Like, first and foremost, Paul could have said, like, God, listen, this is bringing the Jerusalem collection to Jerusalem. Honestly, it could have been done by a group of other men, right? I mean... You know, the money is put together by Gentile churches. Just send other people. Don't send me. I'm the Apostle Paul. I mean, seriously. Right? I'm like, I'm so important. It's so important for me to stay alive. Common sense says that you always send the minions before the general. 
Oh, you could have said, God, like, what good is me being a corpse or being a prisoner? I cannot advance the gospel, right? He could have said that, you know. He could have said, God, look at my report card. I mean, didn't you see my report card? Didn't, didn't you see how many Gentile churches I have set up? I mean, look at Trophimus. Trophimus is a trophy of my evangelistic pursuits. <laughs> he could have said that too, right? Or he could have said, you know what, because I submitted to the council of the Jerusalem elders, which is why I found myself in a mess. Now, God, if that's the way you're going to be doing things, then it's better off that I'm going to take things into my own hands. Because I'm just really not sure that I can trust you, you know. But Paul did none of the above. He did something very counterintuitive. He obeyed God. And he obeyed God on many, many levels. Consider how obeying God can feel counterintuitive. And it's so easy for us to excuse ourselves from obedience. Maybe some of us here, we really want to advance our careers. And there are plenty of good reasons for doing that, right? It's like you want to up your game, you want to improve your skills, you have what it takes to climb up the social ladder, everybody is doing it, you want to fatten your bank account, especially with the inflationary lifestyle. But instead of trusting God with your job, you take things into your own hands. You decide that, you know, I'm going to make sacrifices, I'm going to do whatever it takes um, to, do, you know, to, to, to climb up the social ladder, to climb up this career ladder. And, and maybe, maybe, maybe the way we reason ourselves through self-excuse or something like that, right? It's like, God, you know, honestly, I, it's a hard time. I'm sure you understand. Just give me five years. I mean, five years, sometimes I come to church, sometimes I don't. You know, I withdraw myself from community. But you get it, right? I just need five years. After five years, I'll be wholly devoted to you. After five years, I'm going to plug myself in the community. But give me five years. Maybe some of us, we are single and we really want to get married. We face loneliness, sexual temptation, and frankly, you are sick and tired of hearing that conversation. So when are you going to get married? Especially at Chinese New Year. But instead of waiting for God and His timing, you take things into your own hands. You choose to go out with an unbeliever. Oh, but you have plenty of reasons, right? Uh, we can think of all these reasons. It's like, God, like, seriously, I've been waiting for the longest time. I've been waiting and waiting and waiting and nothing happens. I am going to take things into my own hands. Actually, in fact, come think of it. You know what? Like, the, the person whom I'm dating is so much smarter and more interesting than the brothers in church. Okay, I know I, this is very sensitive, right? Let me go to the other side. <laughs> You know what? Actually, the girl, the girl that I'm dating who's an unbeliever, she gets me, you know. She gets me in a way that the sisters in church don't. Now we're fair. <laughs> now, by the way, all these Christians are hypocritical, right? I mean, seriously, they say one thing and do another. Uh, by the way, you know, if I actually date this unbeliever and marry him or her, you know, maybe I can do this like evangelism by marriage. <laughs> we excuse ourselves from obedience. Maybe you sense that God is calling you to consider missions. I know we don't typically talk about missions, not, not in a while, but somehow when I was praying, I just felt I really have to say that, right? Maybe you feel that God is calling you to consider missions. But you're reluctant to give up your comfort and stability, and so you come up with legitimate excuses. God, it's not, cannot be me, right? I mean, I have a family, I have children, they're in good schools, they have good friends. 
What about the single across the aisle? And then the single says the same thing, right? What, what about the married couple across the aisle? At least they have like family support. Actually, by the way, RHC, you know, it's like, you know, after, after, after ECP and MCP planted out, like there's so many opportunities to serve God. Surely you understand. I need to remain and stay put in Singapore because there are so many opportunities to serve. I don't have to be on missions. And so we excuse ourselves. And I can multiply the examples, right? Staying married in a difficult relationship can feel counterintuitive. It requires courage to obey. It feels counterintuitive because why would God want me to stay on in a difficult marriage? I'm sure He wants me to be happy. Why does He want me to stay in a relationship when I'm constantly fighting and misunderstood and lonely? Wanting to get baptized at the expense of annoying my family, can feel very counterintuitive. I mean, God, surely it's better to not push that baptism button and to, you know, maintain some semblance of cordiality with my family so that perchance I may be able to share the gospel with them. Maybe investing in church is, and church relationships is counterintuitive for some of us because God, don't you understand I've been hurt so many times and rejected so many times and betrayed so many times? I've had enough. And by the way, those friendships that blossom, all these people exit stage left the moment they enter into a new season of life. My friends, obedience is counterintuitive. It really is. And it takes courage to obey. But that's the first thing I want us to see, right? God demands our obedience. God demands courage to obey. But living for Christ is not just the courage to obey. Living for Christ is also the courage to witness. So remember again, Paul didn't just obey God's call to head to Jerusalem. He possessed the courage to witness for Christ, even to an angry mob, right? Um, Acts chapter 22 is the first... Uh, of the three major defense speeches that you're going to be encountering, right, in the remainder of Acts. Now, I want us to notice how Paul actually addresses the, the crowd, right? Look first at how he tries to connect with his audience. 22 verse 2 is not on the slide. You can read in your Bibles. 22 verse 2 says that he addressed them in Hebrew, right? More accurately, he addressed them in Aramaic, which is a dialect of Hebrew. Now, Paul was trying to speak the hard language uh, of these Jews because all of them spoke Aramaic. He was trying to connect with them. But not only was he doing that, right? He was trying to connect with them by emphasizing his Jewish credentials. Now, verse 3, Paul says that he was raised in Jerusalem. He was educated under the renowned rabbi, right, Gamaliel. And he was zealous like these Jews, at least enough to do to others what they are currently doing to him. But verse 14 as well, right? He speaks about his commission to preach the gospel was actually given by who? It was actually given by the God of their fathers, Who's the God of their fathers? What, the God of Abraham and uh, Isaac and Jacob, right? But above all, he's saying that this commission was announced through Ananias, who himself possessed a good reputation amongst the Jewish community. Now, friends, Paul was connecting with the crowd, but make no mistake, he was not accommodating. He was contextualizing, but he was not pandering. Now, how do we know that? Well, because of two reasons. Now, first, Paul called Jesus Lord many times, right? Let's look at the verses up there, right? You see what he says. He says, who are you, Lord? Now, what shall I do, Lord? Verse 10, and the Lord said to me. Verse 19, and I said, Lord, they themselves know. 
you're thinking, okay, with the modern years, like what, what's wrong with calling Jesus Lord, right? Especially like if you're a Christian. And I'm thinking, no, 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 no. Think, think about this, right? The word Lord in Greek is actually a translation of the word Yahweh from the Old Testament. So what Paul is saying is that Paul is actually speaking to Jews who believe that there's only one God and that Jesus is not. He's saying that, you know what? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. Now, that's not just mildly offensive. That's actually blasphemous to these Jews. So he doesn't pull any punches, right? He's willing to connect with them, but at the same time, he speaks truths, even when truths can come across offensive. But second, Paul goes further. Look at verse 17, right? After hearing from, look at what, what, what he hears from Jesus. So this is Paul speaking about his post-conversion experience. So he says in verse 17, when I had returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. So far, so good, right? After he got converted, he went back to the temple. So he's not anti-Jewish. He's not anti-Moses. Great. But what exactly did he hear from Jesus when he was in the temple? Verse 21. Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Wait a minute, Paul. Like, a moment ago, you were nearly killed because you were accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple. And now you mention Gentile and Jesus and temple in the same breath? Are you thinking? And sure enough, in verse 22, we are told that up to this word, they listened. Meaning the crowds, they just went mad, right? They just broke into a second riot. They reached boiling point. They were living. They wanted his blood. Why did Paul do that? Because 22 verse 15 tells us that God has appointed Paul to be a witness God has appointed Paul to testify for Jesus, to speak for him, to defend his honor. Now, maybe at this point we think, you know what? Paul's idea of courage borders on foolhardiness. Right? Maybe he's just one of those dudes who is like, he's crazy about uh, this, he has this martyr's complex, right? He just wants to inflict maximum uh, suffering on himself, suffer for Jesus, and then you can tell everybody, he's like, hey, look at me, look at the way I suffer for Jesus, that all of you don't, right? Maybe that's Paul. But this is not true. How do we know? Because if you read on to verse 24, remember the Romans were about to examine him by flogging. And what did Paul do? He took out his NIC. He says that I'm a Roman citizen. Wait a minute, but Paul, I thought you were seeking suffering, right? I mean, like, no, 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 friends. Paul was not courting suffering for suffering's sake. He was eager to claim his legal rights because he didn't want to be flogged. He didn't want to you know, potentially be flogged to death. Why? Well, because remember we are told earlier that the Holy Spirit has told him that he needs to go to Jerusalem and then afterwards to Rome. Paul is not pursuing suffering for its own sake. He, you know, when he wants to advance the cause of Jesus, he knows when to receive suffering and when to say no to suffering. It's not a masochist. Now, friends, witnessing for Christ costs. Witnessing for Christ incurs relational costs. Some of us know this, right? Some, some of you tell me this, which is that because of your faith in Jesus, because you believe in Him and you speak about Him to your family, uh, it has been rough for you. In fact, some of you tell me that you grieve over the fact that your relationship with the family is never the same again. Or maybe some of you have experienced um, evangelism at the bedside, right? It's like, um, it's one of those 
someone is dying in the hospital and you're surrounded by family members and you try to share the gospel with that person. And it's a very unpleasant experience, right? If you remember some of those experiences because your family members, they start accusing you of all sorts of things. Stop being so insensitive. Stop being so inconsiderate. Why are you being so manipulative? Why are you being an opportunist and stuffing the gospel down a poor man's throat? So witnessing for Christ doesn't just incur relational costs, it incurs like career costs as well, right? Some of you have um, negative reputations at your workplace because you talk about Jesus. And that's a good thing, by the way, I hope that's you, right? Uh, there's a brother from Third Congress who tells me that because he tells people about Jesus all the time, they call him the Bible boy. Uh, back in school, my, uh, in my previous life when I was a high school teacher, my principal used to call me Mr. Preacher. He didn't mean it in a positive light, I, believe me. He was really mocking. For some of us, witnessing Christ at work literally means risking our jobs. And again, I remember back in school evangelizing, um, had a couple of close shaves, right? There was once I, um, the mother of someone who might evangelize, a student who might evangelize, like confronted me. And she's like, hey, I'm going to report your evangelistic activities to the principal. It's a pretty close shave. She didn't in the end, but I had an extra opportunity to witness to her, which was great. <laughs> And then there was another time I remember had to share the gospel with a student whose father was um, a cluster superintendent and happens to be like the boss of my principal <laughs> in the cluster that my school was in, right? And I was like, oh gosh, now I'm going to be in so much trouble. It's like, what are the chances, right? <laughs> of like evangelizing to the daughter of a cluster superintendent. Well, by God's grace, like he was on his way to retirement. So again, I got away unscathed. But guys, I was like really terrified, to be very, very honest. I was terrified not just of losing my job. I was terrified that I had to pay my bond if I lost my job. Maybe some of you are in that kind of circumstance, right? Witnessing for Christ can cost you, quite literally cost you your career. And friends, witnessing for Christ costs because the message of the gospel offends. We know that. I don't mean you offend because you're being unwinsome or tactless in your gospel presentation. I mean the gospel has a built-in offense. I was reading the Bible with a colleague, uh, evangelistic Bible study, and I was, you know, he finally said yes to reading the Bible with me, and we were going through like Genesis chapter 3. And Genesis chapter 3 is where Adam and Eve, they took the fruit, right? And he was reading, and he was like, oh, wow. So sin is trying to be like God. I was like, wow. He's good. I've never seen an unbeliever get sin so clearly, you know? It's like, yeah, yeah, absolutely, you got it right. He, sin is trying to be like God. Uh, this is rebellion, you know, trying to be independent from God. So, how? And he's like, now, if that's what sin is, and if that's the Bible's definition of sin, I want nothing to do with the faith. And that was the last Bible study I had with him. I mean, he was still in contact as friends. But I haven't even got to the gospel yet. I was just talking about sin. But the gospel offends. It takes courage to witness for Christ. But some of us, so all of us need courage to witness, but some of us need to be wary of a kind of false courage that delights in self-sacrifice. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me give you some examples. Maybe some of us in this room are so inclined to provoke authorities in the name of advancing the gospel. Maybe some of us in this room are so inclined 
to quit our jobs mindlessly and then to demand that people fund our ministry. Maybe some of us are so inclined to offend unbelievers through tactless gospel presentations and then pride ourselves as martyrs. Maybe some of us, we just hide behind the screen, we're keyboard warriors, we're debating matters of the faith. And when we get into the line of fire, we say, thank you, Jesus, that I'm counted worthy to suffer for you. My friends, listen to me. I'm not, I'm not saying that witnessing doesn't cost because I just said that witnessing for Christ costs. There are sacrifices to be made. But what I'm cautioning here is what is driving that spirit of self-sacrifice? Maybe it's one thing to make myself more acceptable to God, right? Maybe some of us have this thought that if I suffer more for Jesus, maybe God is going to show me more favor. Maybe God will see me as more acceptable. But friends, we know that's not true because God made me acceptable through this, to one and only sacrifice, which is the sacrifice of Jesus. I'm not more or less acceptable because of my sacrifice of suffering. Maybe some of us, we just think that if we suffer more, we are more acceptable to men. You know, if I suffer more, I'm that gold Christian, gold standard Christian, and I look down on all of you guys like, oh, they just want to read the Bible and, you know, they never ever start sharing about Jesus, right? But friends, that is not true courage, right? That masquerades as true courage, but it is self-interested and it is self-exalting. True courage, as we see from Paul, is a courage to advance the gospel, the courage to witness for Christ. It does not pursue suffering for suffering's sake. So the courage to live for Christ is the courage to obey, but it's also the courage to witness. But finally, where can we get his courage? Or where does Paul get his courage? And the short answer is in encountering a gracious Christ, in encountering a gracious Savior. My friends, Paul is, Paul's encounter was pretty dramatic, right? Verses 6 through 8 tells us that Christ showed up, what, in the middle of the day, literally, in bright daylight, at noon, right? Just when Paul was going about doing his own thing, which is imprisoning Christians, Jesus literally showed up. And he showed up in an unmistakable way, right? It was like a blinding light, and then it was an unmistakable voice that Paul heard very clearly. And, and I know we are caught up in this like, dramatic encounter that Paul had with Christ, but I think there's one thing that I want to say that we, we, we tend to overlook, right? Which is that Jesus is gracious to Paul. Now, how do we see that? Now, first, Jesus chose the most unlikely candidate, <laughs> Paul is the most unlikely candidate for salvation, honestly. Now think about this, right? He, he, he's like, he was no seeker. He wasn't like, you know, I want to find out more about Jesus. I want to attend Discovering Christianity. No, 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 it's none of that. The only seeking he was doing is to seek the deaths of believers and to seek their imprisonment. He was no lover of Jesus Christ. He was a hater of Jesus. In fact, he persecuted him. And yet Jesus showed up. And yet grace showed up. And grace showed up and turned his life upside down. Now imagine the one who was a persecutor now becoming persecuted. The one who was a hunter and now he's hunted. Because Jesus showed up, because the grace of God appeared in the person of Jesus Christ, Paul's entire life was changed. So that's the first way that we see the graciousness of Jesus towards Paul. But we see the graciousness of Jesus towards Paul in a second way as well. Now, friends, remember, Jesus was gracious to Paul 
in that he went on the journey that Paul was about to undertake. He went before Paul on the same journey that Paul is about to undertake in the remainder of Acts. Jesus made that trip to Jerusalem before Paul did in the final chapters of Acts. Jesus was arrested and trout in Jerusalem before Paul was. Jesus defended his cause and ministry before the Jewish authorities who would trump up charges against him. And so will Paul. Jesus went to the cross for Paul and died for the one who hated him. And this experience completely changed Paul. This, such is the graciousness of Jesus towards the most undeserving sinner. But friends, let me turn to you and ask you a similar question. Have you encountered the gracious Savior? Consider some of these things, right? Consider how Christ obeyed for your sake even when it felt counterintuitive. He didn't bow down to Satan who promised kingdoms and glory even though he was the rightful king. He didn't call down legions of angels to punish those who mock him even though he's the rightful judge. He didn't come down from the cross even when he was being taunted, even though he was the rightful son of God. But friends, he obeyed every single moment of his life right down to the last because he did it for you. He did it for me. He did it to save you and I from the ultimate loss of being separated from God eternally. And because of this, my question to you is this. Have you encountered the gracious Christ? Has Christ become precious and real to you? Now, and I want you to have that question in your, in your thoughts because if Christ is not precious and real, if you have not encountered the gracious Christ in the manner that I spoke of, then Christianity will only be useful to you. If Christianity doesn't work, you should just drop Christ and you will. When sufferings come, when sea billows come, when you're, when you're buffeted by all sorts of trials and all sorts of things and losses, the first thing you're going to drop is Jesus Christ. Because you do your cost-benefit analysis and you think that it's not worthwhile following Jesus. But if Jesus is real and precious, if you have truly encountered that gracious Savior, then your entire life suddenly is turned upside down. Your entire life suddenly revolves around this one individual. You're suddenly, you're making sacrifices for this person. Now, let me get real concrete here, right? Just, just consider this. Imagine you're single and you finally meet someone, right? You, uh, and you meet a girl, right? And you know what happens, right, when you meet a girl you, or you meet a guy, whatever it is, right? And, um, and your life just changes in ways beyond what you can ask for or imagine, right? So previously, you are very guarded about your time. And suddenly, because of this love interest in your life, you know, you're willing to drive her or him from Bunle to Tanamera. Previously, you're very guarded with your wallet, and now you're like offering to pay for every meal. Previously, you're a couch potato. You don't even run. And then suddenly, you're running marathons with or without her. <laughs> now, you see what happens. Like, if a love interest can crash into your life, and turn your life upside down and have your life revolve around that person and make you willingly sacrifice, how much more when you encounter the gracious Christ? How much more when the gracious Savior appears in your life? Now, friends, that's where we get the courage to obey. That's where we get the courage to witness. Remember how I started my sermon saying that the way we get courage often is by relativizing our fears. If the, if the gains outweigh the, you know, the losses, then I'm going to 
pluck up some courage. But friends, what I'm saying here is this, what if Christ is your gain? Listen carefully, I'm not just saying that Christ will preserve your interests and He will take care of your goods. I'm saying that Christ is your highest interest and your greatest good. Now friends, only when that happens, we get true courage. Because all the losses that you and I are going to face will be relative. They're not unreal, but they'll be relative to gaining Christ. Now, the courage to obey and the courage to witness comes from encountering a gracious Savior. Now, remember earlier I was talking about like how Paul is a witness and Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, this famous British preacher, has differentiated the difference between an advocate and a witness, right? So, if you're an advocate, you know, it, I mean, look, I, there are lawyers in this room I don't want to pretend that I know what I'm talking about, right? But just... Right, follow me. So if you're advocate, you know, you're trying to like assemble the evidence and you're trying to like make a case and you're trying to persuade someone coolly, right? But if you're a witness, you are there. You are there. You have seen it. You have heard it. That's why you're a witness. Now remember today's passage, we're not talking about advocate here. Paul is a witness. We are called to be witness, right? And the closest example I can think of is this. Like if, if people speak ill of me and my wife gets wind of it, she's not going to be an advocate, you know? It's like, oh, let me assemble the evidence, you know, let me coolly persuade the adversaries, you know, like maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong. No, 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 she's going to be a witness for me. She's going to be like, no, you completely misunderstood my husband. That's not who he is. She's, going, she's not going to coolly defend me. She's going to get all worked up. But that's what witnesses are. And we are called to be witness, not advocates. But the only way you can become a witness is if you have seen and heard the gracious Savior. So in closing, let me say this again. The courage to obey and witness comes from knowing that Christ is real and precious because He showed up in your life when you didn't expect it. I once made some serious mistakes at work. Um, it was serious enough. I mean, I was uh, really, really upset and I was just thinking, it's like, oh gosh, it's like, I didn't want my bosses to think badly of me. You know, my colleagues to think very badly of me. And so I was uh, hatching some strategies, strategies in my mind, right? It's like, yeah, hmm, should I cover up, you know, fudge the truth a little bit, you know, just go gray, right? But my conscience was raging because I felt myself torn in two directions, right? I, I knew that it was right. It was, it was courageous to do the right thing. But on the other hand, I was really afraid. I mean, it's like the consequences and the stakes are high. I remember I was so affected that I almost had an emotional meltdown on that particular day. So I decided to go for a ride. And I was riding. Um, I was on the bicycle and I was praying. And I was... And it's just like in that moment, there was like a laser-focused clarity. It's almost like Jesus showed up. And the way he told me was this. It's like, hey, Kyung, actually things are quite simple. All you need to do is to obey me and to own up to your mistakes. I'm like, but why should I obey you? I mean, he's like, and, he, and I remember that impression on me. He's like, no, because I am the one who died for you. Your bosses didn't die for you. Your colleagues didn't die for you. There's only one thing you need to do. And it's very simple. You just needed to obey me because I died for you. Now friends, do we have the courage to live for Christ 
because Christ had the courage to live and die for us. Let me pray. Father God, we all need courage. Every one of us in this room, you know our fears, spoken, unspoken. Maybe some of us need courage to let go of certain career ambitions that do not please you. Maybe some of us need courage to let go of certain marital prospects that does not bring you pleasure. Maybe some of us need to stay in marriages that are hard and we need courage for that. Maybe some of us need courage to know and be known in this imperfect community after repeatedly being heard. Father, I even think of those amongst us, maybe those who are in darkness now, those who are struggling with depression, with a chronic pain that doesn't let up, family circumstances, and maybe the courage that we need this afternoon is the courage to persevere and to follow Jesus even when the going gets tough. You know exactly the courage that we need right here, right now. But I pray more than that. I pray you grant us the courage to witness. We don't just want to be your advocates. We really want to witness for Jesus because he has so graciously appeared in our lives and turned our lives upside down that we cannot but speak of him. Help us to be a people who are willing to let goods and kindreds go because we have encountered the gracious Saviour. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.